Hello, hello, hello. So, um, around a decade ago, seems like a long time ago now, um, I decided to go on a journey to have a look at how, we, how humans are changing the planet. Um, I bought a one-way ticket to Kathmandu, and over the next two and a half years, I travelled across more than 40 countries, um, through the global south mainly, from Asia to Africa to Latin America. I, I attempted to learn a huge variety of different languages. I ate widely whatever I could, from um, insects to antelopes. I uh, wore all sorts of different clothes. I, I uh, explored as many different uh, buildings and houses and people's uh, ideas as I possibly could. And um, I slept in all sorts of different places, from, uh, from brothels to uh, the cab of a lorry to um, a cave, um, all sorts of places. And what I discovered on this journey, as uh, Rosie alluded to, is um, that humans, everywhere they go, they adapt incredibly to their local environment. And as we are changing this environment through, through climate change, through overexploitation, people are coming up with new innovations, new ways of living in that environment. And um, that led to um, a book that I wrote um, about how we are now entering this new human age, the, the Anthropocene. But at the back of my mind, there was this question niggling away. I was in a forest in Uganda the first time I came face to face with a chimpanzee. Such intelligent eyes, uh, a face that was uh, full of emotion and uh, thoughtful, hands that uh, were so human that were manipulating a fruit. It's really something quite incredible uh, it raises all sorts of feelings and, and emotions when you look into the intelligent eyes of a chimpanzee and, and see something, someone so familiar and yet so, so other. And um, I can only assume that this, um, this, this uh, respect and admiration that I felt for my, for my fellow creature was, uh, was reciprocated, um, even if uh, she responded by, well, throwing feces at me and trying to pee on me as I was following her family through the forest. Um, anyway, uh, I don't believe that we were created... Um, specially, we were we were made specially humans. That I, I don't believe in um, in the idea that we were made in the image of a god. I'm a scientist. I I think that we are simply a twig on this huge evolutionary tree of life. And the reason that that she seemed so familiar to me is that. Evolutionarily speaking, she's my closest living relative. She's my cousin. We share a great-grandmother ancestrally only five or six million years ago. We're, we're really closely related, and, and it shows. And yet, everything on that journey that I undertook was screaming out the opposite. You know, we are nothing like chimpanzees. We're nothing like any of the other creatures on Earth. 
We're different. We are exceptional. We evolved uh, through the natural process of evolution. We are of nature. But are we natural? And if not, what then are we? So this, this, question, this question bugged me. I mean, hadn't I been accumulating all this evidence that, that we really are exceptional, that we've changed the planet, that we've done something that none of the other creatures had done? And when you look at the chimpanzees, that, that chimpanzees the chimpanzees that I followed through the forest, I just remembered I've got slides and I'm not even showing them. So when I look at her, she's living the same life that she has lived for millions of years. Like she's smart, she's intelligent. Um, she's a hunter-gatherer, she uses a few primitive tools. I mean, our species only evolved two to 300,000 years ago. So genetically, we're almost all exactly the same. In fact, there is more genetic difference between two chimpanzees on either side of Africa. In fact, two chimpanzees either side of the Congo River than there is between two humans from uh, different, different continents. But, look at where this tropical ape lives. We live everywhere, we can survive everywhere. As my journey confirmed, humans are not limited to the tropical ecological niche or diet that our ancestors had. We adapt to our environment and adapt our environment for ourselves. So our bodies are no more adapted to the Arctic than a chimpanzee's. In fact, we're less adapted, right? Because chimpanzees have got fur and we don't. In other words, humans have transcended the normal rules of biological evolution. And it's made us the most powerful creatures on Earth. Earth is now in human hands. So how did we do it? How did a smart ape become a planet-dominating force? And to me, this is the greatest question. Who are we and what makes us special? So um, I know that other people, men mainly, have um, approached this topic from, uh, we have the Bible, we have uh, Darwin's Descent of Man, we have um, Harari's Sapiens, but none of that really satisfied me. So um, I set out on my own journey to, uh, to try and answer it myself. And I, I came to this research from a scientific perspective without, without really acknowledging some of my own preconceived ideas. Like, what does it mean to progress? But what I discovered while writing my book, Transcendence, um, really fascinated me. And I want to share a little of that with you. So... Is it all down to the fact that we're really clever compared to all the other animals? Well, yes and no. I mean, I realize that I'm currently in the company of some very, very clever people, of course. Um, but I think we all know people who are not that clever and yet are surviving fine. In fact, they may be very wealthy. They may be some of the most powerful people on the planet. So... 
it's not our individual brains that is important. It's our collective brains. So we do something that none of the other creatures do. We cooperate in large numbers and with complete strangers. Look, we do it all the time. We're doing it here now. We're all sitting here nicely. Nobody's kicking off. Nobody's fighting. You wouldn't get this with, well, you wouldn't get this with a load of kids, let alone with chimps. We have agreed among ourselves, not I didn't bring, bring up the rules, you didn't bring up the rules. We have agreed. We have learnt that this is the way that it is socially acceptable to behave in this gathering. We've learnt from each other. So collaborating with each other is so important that not only would our societies become impossible without it, but our survival as individuals would become impossible. I mean, if you consider that from the moment a person is born, we are reliant on our group for survival. We're reliant on each other. In fact, we can't even give birth without the help of others. I mean, that's such a fundamental thing to survival. So it's quite, um, it's quite an extraordinary thing, that. Um, so human, human mothers don't give birth alone. It's, it's too dangerous. And it is perhaps... I think it's perhaps the, the ancestral uh, collaborations that, uh, that uh, ancestral women had to make during pregnancy and childbirth that really underpins this, uh, the social networks that we, uh, that we rely on today. So collaboration is so important that we've um, developed various rituals and, um, and uh, practices to make it more pleasurable, to encourage us to uh, collaborate. Because... Collaboration makes us better, more efficient hunters, makes us better, more efficient players generally in the world. Because it enables us to outsource our physical and mental costs to the group. And when I say costs, what I'm talking about is our energy costs. Humans are the most successful species on Earth because we outsource our energy costs better than any other creature. So it started with food. Um, chimps are pretty efficient hunter-gatherers. I'm not a very efficient hunter-gatherer, but I regularly obtain more calories and with a tiny fraction of the energy and time expenditure. So I can just pull a can, flip it out, and do that. So um, this is actually what I have quite often for my lunch. So <laughs> you're getting an insight into my energy costs right here. We can rely, I can rely on um, not just uh, my family, but a whole group of strangers, a whole globe of strangers to help me provide my um, dinner. So once our ancestors mastered fire, they, they were able to outsource the energy costs um, that their guts had to do in digesting their food, because cooked food is a much more efficient way of getting calories. And that meant that um, they had enough energy for, um, to support um, to fuel a bigger brain, and our evolution responded, our brains got bigger. And uh, what do we use our bigger brains for? Well, we use them to copy each other. We are amazing copiers. Bigger brains meant we could remember more and remember more accurately. So enable this entirely new form of evolution, new form of human evolution, human cultural evolution. 
And it's this that makes humans unlike any other species. It's this that means that I'm wearing clothes and wandering around and visiting chimps in their habitat and the chimps not coming to visit me. So our culture is cumulative. It builds by copying what went before. What went before. And uh, remember, we don't just rely on our individual brains, we rely on the brains of the group. So I, can, I, I, I don't have to invent the wheel each time, I can rely on my group knowing how to do it and, and copy the, least, the last available tool. And these cultures get passed down over time, just as genetic traits are copied and evolve over time. So in human, our cultural traits, our behaviours, our languages, our tools, our technologies, we're brilliant copiers. And so, over time, our cultures evolve, our languages evolve, our behaviours evolve. So, although we're biologically almost the same as each other, culturally, we're incredibly diverse. We've developed these incredible, diverse, complex cultures over time. And our culture is very much, fundamentally, what it means to be human. It makes us who we are. So, because cultural evolution affects our biology, just, um, you've grown up in a literate society. People who can read well are less good at remembering faces because our brain network has developed to uh, be, become better at recognizing words, at word recognition than at face recognition. There's a payoff that's happened. And the words we use also affect our perception. So take colors. Um, the... Uh, So, so um, as languages evolve, the first uh, colour terms that, that um, almost every language on Earth develops is uh, the colour for black and the colour for white, and then, and then the red is the next one generally. Green follows after that, and then perhaps blue and maybe orange, other colours um, develop after that. And some cultures never, some societies don't get on to naming some of the colours. It's not necessary. Um, so the Himba people of Namibia, for example, do not have a word for blue, and as a result, they don't see blue in the same way that we see blue. So if they're shown these two color charts, they find it hard to pick out in um, this one, for example, which the odd one out is. Um, we don't find it that difficult. But what they do have is lots of different words for the shades of the color, whereas we don't um, have that. So for them, it's very easy for them to see the odd one out in the left-hand um, color palette, and if you're having trouble, it's in the same position as the blue one. Um, these are the Pantone um, identification. So our tools and our languages have diversified over the world, and over generations, as we copy each other to strengthen our social groups, we build our group identities and reinforce socially acceptable behaviors and customs. In turn, these cultural norms affect us and our environment. So, um, take farming. Now, farming was invented around the world in different places from about 8,000 years ago and uh, differently in different places. So, rice farming, for example, is, very, um, is a very uh, collective type of farming. Um, everybody has a stake in the irrigation that's needed um, and um, the harvesting and, um, and so on. So, it's collected, collectively uh, farmed using shared infrastructure um, and in places like this, 
in, in comparison to um, the West, where it's more individualistic. So in places like um, where a more collectivist type of culture, type of farming culture was developed, people tend to have a more holistic mindset. Um, and this mindset uh, manifests in different ways. So, for example, if um, people uh, from a uh, rice farming culture are shown these three, they will, and told to group two of them out of the three, they will tend to group the tracks and the train because the train doesn't make sense out of context with the tracks, whereas um, Westerners are more likely to um, pair the two vehicles. If they're shown a face, um, more collectivist cultures are more likely to centralize, and iScan studies show this, they're more likely to centralize their gaze um, in the middle of the face, whereas um, people from the West are more likely to um, triangulate over the eyes and the mouth. So we, we actually see things differently. And because we learn our behaviors by copying what's gone before, some of these can persist in societies for generations even after they were culturally selected for. So, um, for example, uh, people who farm with um, plows or using um, oxen or beasts of burden tend to be more patriarchal than people who farm with digging sticks and hoes where, where um, women can get involved more easily and it's more compatible with childcare. And even when these um, societies have urbanized and they're no longer farming, you tend to find that one farms that people that used to farm in this way are more patriarchal than um, the societies that used to are more patriarchal than, um, than the other ones. Um, so, it, so norms powerfully shape how we see the world and um, at the risk of starting a fight, um, they, they show it, they, 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 um, norms shape how we perceive everything from colors as we've seen to like, so this is the, um, the very controversial blue and black dress or white and gold dress. Um, it was actually blue and black, um, but people, see these very differently according to, people think, um, the amount of time they spend outside in natural light um, because that's, that um, sets their brain's um, expectation of what colors uh, they should see. So our brains invent our reality based on our culture in developing bath, based on the way our society presents the world to us and what is normal. And these cultural biases don't feel like biases. They feel right. They feel real. But they are invented, and they don't just affect our perception of color, but how we value each other, and whether we think they or people are good or bad. And this is the Achilles heel of our cultural evolution. We evolved as cultural beings utterly reliant on the collective knowledge and the power of our group. But we can only rely on this knowledge being useful if it's faithfully copied. And so as a result, we trust copiers more than people who are different. We think that they are good. They are like us. But cultural evolution, just like biological evolution, absolutely relies on diversity. Because it's only by the, by uh, combining and collecting the diverse ideas and tools and values 
of our group collective toolbox, and we can come up with new ideas. We can evolve new tools and new behaviors. So human cultural evolution has made us the most successful big species on Earth. There are now almost 8 billion of us living in a hyper-connected world. But if we are going to solve the very real environmental and social problems that we face, we are absolutely going to need to use our diversity of mindsets. Thank you.